Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Mike Hume to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Mike is Professor of Human Geography in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Pembroke College. His work explores the idea of climate change from a range of perspectives, historical, cultural, scientific, revealing various ideological, political and ethical dimensions to the way climate change is deployed in public and political conversations. So thank you very much, Mike, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Very good to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me onto the show. Great. So um, maybe if you could just, for the listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what, what what your current uh, work focus is, Mike. Yeah, so I'm uh, first and foremost a geographer, uh, academic geographer. I trained as a geography student many, many years ago. Uh, did a PhD in geography, uh, started lecturing in geography, then for mm, 25 years or so, when I was at the University of East Anglia, I worked very much more as a climate scientist um, and set up the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. Um, but then, since then, I retired from that role 13 years ago. And more recently, having come back into a geography department uh, here at Cambridge and previously at King's in London, I've been uh, much more interested, not so much in the science of climate change, but in how the science of climate change is understood and used and deployed in public life. In other words, I'm interested in how the idea of climate change is now transforming and changing uh, different worlds uh, in the present um, through our political, cultural, social uh, uptake and resistance. And uh, many of my writings have been uh, around those themes in recent years. Right. Uh, I'm yes. so particularly you know, at the moment. I'm still very much interested in these in these questions, um, the relationship between science and policy, between science and culture, um, about the politics of climate change, and about the possibilities for action uh, in the world. Yes. Yes, uh, all the topics are some of which we hopefully will get to talk about uh, on, on this uh, this uh, chat, this interview. Um, I guess uh, also I'll be interested to get a sense. I mean, you've been in the world writing and thinking about uh, climate for 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 many decades. Uh, what, what what's on your mind at the moment? Is there anything particular keeping you awake um, in terms of face very many uh, worrying uh, environmental crises right now? Uh, well, yeah, various things are on my mind, and none of these things um, keep me awake. I was first asked that question. I remember back in 1990, I'd given a talk uh, about climate science way back then, 30 years ago. To, In fact, it was to a church group, I believe, and a young lady came up to me afterwards and said, how do you sleep at night? And I, I said then, as I say now, actually, I've never been kept awake by climate change, there are other things um, that have kept me awake more around my um, uh, personal or family life. But um, climate change doesn't keep me awake at night. Um, uh, and some people say, well, that means that you, you, you've become totally insensitive then to uh, the plight and the problems that climate change presents. Um, well, maybe, maybe that is, uh, or maybe I find a way of immunizing myself. I'm not sure. I'm concerned about climate change. I'm concerned about many things in the world, uh, and many of which climate change will probably make harder rather than easier. Um, but my my whole point about the way I study and write about climate change uh, is to, to try to put climate change into a a broader context uh, into a context about how humans do and think and can think about themselves in the world, uh, the possibilities for action, the limits of human agency. And this is what I have recently, 10 years or so now, been happy 
to call a, a form of climate pragmatism. Um, it's realizing that, that humans are so now deeply embedded in changing the physical world around them and actually also our world within us in physical ways that we can't extract ourselves to revert to some pre-human environment or some pre-human genome. Uh, we are agents of power, sometimes deliberate, sometimes inadvertent. Um, so we can't eliminate climate change. We can't revert. We can't restore climate. Uh, so within the limits of agency, human agency, what actually is it possible for us to do? Um, and my point uh, as, as an academic, as an educator, as a speaker, uh, is to try to help people think through this um, beyond just the, the easy soundbite. Um, uh, so my most recent book, for example, um, published just a month or so ago, was called Contemporary Debates in Climate Change. Uh, and here I picked out 15 questions. Uh, and for each question, I found two different scholars from different parts of the world, one to answer the question with a yes, and the other to answer it with a no. These are 15 questions that are serious and difficult questions that climate change raises, not about whether it's happening or not, that's rather passe, but about the forms of agency and action and responsibility uh, that one believes are appropriate in the face of climate change. Um, so questions like the role of carbon markets or carbon pricing, um, questions about should we be researching technologies to intervene in the uh, stratosphere to uh, force radi radiation back to some pre-industrial conditions, questions about um, whether a Chinese form of environmental authoritarianism is the right way because democracies are too unwieldy, um, or questions about whether social media make it harder or easier to enact climate policy. These are serious questions that touch not so much on scientific knowledge, but touch on political and ethical and moral reasoning. Um, so these are these are things that I feel are really important, um, and yeah, those are the those are the things that absorb my my time and my energy as a as an academic. Any one of those questions, um, we could spend a tremendous amount of time talking about um, me trying to understand. Um, and uh, do you think that uh, these questions, these important questions? have to some extent been crowded out by a focus more around questions for one reason or another about, about whether or not it's happening and, and which has seems to have dominated the, the debate, well, we'll call it a debate for, for quite a long, long, long period of time. Although there does seem to be some uh, signs of the change momentum moving towards moving beyond that. But I'm just wondering to what extent you think that uh, maybe a, a, a singular focus on that question and maybe an underlying assumption also that if we explain things better, if we make the science clearer, if we can show stronger evidence, then people will understand and will come together to take action. Mm. Oh, the, 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 these, these, these things have certainly dominated large parts of my career. When I first entered uh, the research world in the 1980s, um, looking at climate data and from around the world and what these data could tell us and how they compared with what models were predicting, you know, there were quite serious and important scientific questions about detection. Can we detect a human signal uh, in the climate system above natural variability? And are these models that are being developed to try to see into the future, are they credible? These were serious scientific debates and important ones. Uh, and the, one of the tragedies around climate change is that um, for, for too long, these types of debates seemed to be the territory upon which climate scientists and their opponents, of course, were quite happy to invest in the, uh, their energies and their time 
Um, and to some extent, even now, today, still do. Although, as you say, certainly to a lesser extent than uh, even five years ago, certainly than 10 years ago. Whereas climate change is not, first and foremost, for me, uh, any longer, if, if maybe it was 20 or 30 years ago, but it certainly isn't for me any longer, a question that really that science, climate science can really do very much to help us work our way through. It is first and foremost a problem of humanity, a problem of being human, of being humans with uh, immense creativity, um, immense power, if, of course, hugely differential uh, in ability to exercise that power, um, a human species that is very populous, um, these, these are questions about what it is to be human and how to exercise that humanity. And I don't see actually that climate science really has very much to help us in work our way through those questions. Those questions are ethical, moral, political, cultural, uh, if you will, uh, before they are scientific. And so um, simply thinking as we did and I did, uh, certainly in the 1990s, I thought this way, that simply more science, better science, uh, communicating the science of climate change, eliminating the uncertainties in future predictions would bring about political change as a hopelessly naive notion. Uh, and huge amounts of research in sociology and social psychology and science studies, communication studies have shown why that is the case. Um, and so I get very frustrated when still I hear people in public life, advocates and campaigners saying, listen to the science, listen to the scientists, um, do what the science demands. Science doesn't demand anything of a human being. And that form of reasoning to me is still a distraction from what is the primary task here, which is to engage difficultly, for sure, in politics, i.e. different competing values and visions of how the world should be. And that is where climate change, in the end, that's the only place uh, where uh, climate change is going to be resolved. So uh, you talk about uh, political change. Um, these kinds of questions, these ethical questions, these cultural questions, are they similar? Are, are they the same kinds of questions, although different, that we face in all political decision making? You know, that the different uh, perspectives, different sets of values, different sets of meanings and so forth. Or is there something, do you think, distinct about that's that, that that's particularly interesting about climate change in that respect? Yeah, so that's that's a that's a that's a good question because it's it's both and it, um, in one at one level they are very similar to the sorts of uh, differences and divisions and conflicts and contests that we have seen historically in different political cultures. Um, uh, for example, the clash between those who are motivated through extrinsic values and those who by intrinsic, for example, is one binary, those who see a more hierarchical form of social organization as opposed to those who are more egalitarian, um, those who um, uh, are committed to new technologies uh, to solve new problems on the one hand, as opposed to those who are always deeply suspicious of new technologies. You know, these are enduring facets of political debate that erupt um, in many, many different areas of public life. However, there is something different about climate change. I think it raises different types of questions around those, around which those different stances have to navigate and which is to change the scale of our awareness of human agency. Um, and that scale is, of course, in both space and time. Um, this is what climate change has done in a way that earlier environmental problems that initially drove a lot of the environmental movement, certainly in Western Europe in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, did not possess. So uh, DDT famously uh, or, you know, that motivated Rachel Carson. DDT, um, although 
in a way did have great reach her argument being that it worked its way through the food chain nevertheless it didn't in, in, engage every single human being on the planet um, as part of the driving force uh, of the problem and it didn't have the same temporal reach that i think climate change has you know things that are happening to the climate that we have enacted in my lifetime um, will be resonating still through the planet in one two or three hundred years time not least uh, at sea level rise whatever we may do with global temperature uh, we certainly will not be able to arrest the rise in seas for several centuries so the time scale of the questions are and the spatial extent of these questions, I think, are new. Um, and that's why, of course, the politics of climate change is so horrendously difficult. But the reasons why people disagree about the nature or the scale of the problem and the types of interventions that people would like to see, the reasons for that, those disagreements, I think, are rooted very much in the same different instincts and intuitions that we have often seen uh, uh, motivate political life in the past. That's interesting. When you talked about uh, various different uh, ways of uh, understanding or looking for solutions when it comes to climate change, for example, technology and so forth, um, people have different views on that. It's an area where there's been tremendous uh, innovation and change. When it comes to politics and political structures, What's your sense of how uh, fit they are for dealing with the kinds of issues that we need to deal with if we're going to tackle climate change? Um, <clears throat> I, I think I think the key the key part of that question was uh, if we're going to tackle climate change. Um, <laughs> yes, it depends what you mean by tackling uh, climate change. Uh, if 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 we're if we're embarked on a uh, on a course of action where we we're we're, we're, desire, we're de- desiring to eradicate climate change, in other words, to uh, uh, arrest and then revert climate back to a, a pre-industrial condition, then we will never accomplish that. Um, uh, whether you've got whatever sort of political structures you you, you have, um, if if however, and, and this is more the way I. Approach climate change using this notion of climate pragmatism. Climate change is a is a composite uh, problem. Um, it's a problem that consists of many other problems, um, or if you will, uh, it's a predicament. It's a difficult situation um, to which we can see no easy um, outcome uh, or way out of. If we approach climate change in that way, then our our, our horizon of what is achievable politically is a, a uh, proportionally uh, reduced. We're not trying to stop climate change. We're not trying to eradicate it. We're trying to make interventions that <clears throat> eliminate some of the most egregious harms and da- dangers and damages. Um, and, and that might be quite limited in in, in scale and, and, and time. Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, they will be achievable uh, within a, a, a plausible horizon. The, the difficulty of, of setting out on a task of trying to keep global temperature to 1.5 degrees um, is that one's embarking on a task that is is impossible, I would argue at least, is impossible to achieve. And our political structures will not be able to deliver that um, simply because of the complexities and the inertias that exist within our energy system, within our um, forms of social organisation, within our cultural values. And, and inertias within the human population itself, dem- demographics. So, so yes, then our political systems will appear to be totally inadequate, and it will lead either to uh, more draconian forms of intervention, i.e., more authoritarian uh, forms of governance, <clears throat> or more dramatic interventions in the stratosphere, um, uh, or or it'll lead it'll lead to despair and. Uh, 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 cynicism um, about our politics uh, and about the um, habitability of our planet and those are not outcomes that I particularly would like uh, to see so I think we have to scale 
back a little our ambition of what we can achieve. And in doing that, we actually then find new ways of uh, moving forward, not at the scale, at the speed uh, that a, a 10 year deadline um, demands of us, um, but it more pragmatically uh, will allow us to deliver certain environmental goods. Yes, it's very interesting. I think um, already some signs of what you might call climate fascism or climate nationalism emerging um, for a number of different reasons, I guess, but also you can see how that would tap into these uh, expectations as well and how that might accelerate in, in, in the future or, or, or become more exacerbated. Um, what do you think are reasonable expectations for what we can achieve politically or pragmatically politically? Well, I'm... Um... I'm a reasonable techno-optimist. I'm a cautious techno-optimist um, in, in the sense that I do see that the direction of travel uh, in, in the world is clearly away from fossil fuels to lower or zero carbon uh, forms of energy production. That's certainly a direction of travel um, that the world has embarked on. Um, and we should be doing what we can to try to accelerate that pathway, not um, exercising ourselves about artificial deadlines of one, five, 10 or 12 years by which certain things have to be accomplished, but simply making sure that that direction of travel is given sufficient push and momentum uh, to keep it going in, in, in the right direction. Um, and there are various you know, interventions, political po policy interventions that can help uh, along that pathway um uh we, you know we, we we already have passed the point of um peak carbon emissions per capita in the world in other words um our our, our growth and actually we passed the point of peak carbon intensity for economic production as well so for every unit of GDP we generate, we 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 emit less carbon now uh, than we did in the past. And for every person uh, on the planet, uh, we are now emitting less carbon <laughs> than we did in the past. So those are indicators that we're uh, heading in the right direction. Um, but but I think we can't. Um, we need to be careful if we try to push. The speed of that transition and that transformation too fast, too quickly, uh, as I said, according to what I think are artificial deadlines. And the re some reasons for that: one is you're going to find um, dangerous political backlash um, uh, if you try to accelerate that against um, the forms of democracy that we've evolved uh, in the world. Uh, President Macron saw that uh, happen. Um, with the yellow vest in France. Um, the other danger uh, of trying to push this too quickly um, is, is because of uh, questions around justice um, and about fairness, which is there are many people who, whose lives are still deeply dependent, their livelihoods are still deeply dependent uh, upon uh, fossil carbon energy sources. And there are many, many people on the planet, um, one or two billion people who have got in a totally inadequate access to cheap and reliable energy services for anything close to what we would deem to be um, a, a decent human life. Um, so we're going to need more energy uh, in the future rather than less. Um, and that puts some, con uh, some constraints uh, just on how quickly one can bring about that, uh, that transition. Yes, uh, I'm interested to uh, come back to a couple of things you said there. You mentioned artificial deadlines, and I'm just wondering, there's a lot of talk, increasing talk these days um, about so-called tipping points. Um, why do you think these deadlines are artificial, and what do you think when it comes to thinking about time frames? What's the best way to approach it? Hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, the deadline is artificial in the sense that, that, that it was a purely political uh, decision or result of a political negotiation um, to put two degrees 
or 1.5 degrees as Paris put into play um, as somehow the decisive determinant of a successful climate policy. Actually, the very use, use of global temperature is, is, a, is, a, is a political decision. Why is global temperature the, the index um, against which we're measuring um, success as opposed to, for example, um, rates of carbon intensity, speed of decarbonization, um, levels of uh, access to cheap, reliable, reliable energy sources. Um, you know, that, that, the, the, those are political decisions. They're, they're not ones that science discovered. Um, uh, they're, they're the result of political negotiations, um, just as indeed are the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and actually, in many ways, I quite often say I would rather put the 17 SDGs at the centre of international um, uh, policy uh, than I would climate. Climate is an energy, clean energy is one of those SDGs, but there are 16 others that each of which speaks to very important uh, aspects of human welfare and well-being. Um, uh, so I would, I would actually put all 17 into play rather than obsess um, over one which, as I say, has got some rather artificial timescales attached to it. And the point about tipping points, <clears throat> I mean, that scientists, Earth system scientists, um, are still pretty much working in speculative mode uh, when they talk about tipping points. And this idea of there being a global tipping point um, at 1.5 degrees or at any particular threshold uh, is 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 uh, something that very few Earth system scientists would would be able to say hand on heart that they know that there is a global tipping point, even less exactly where it is. Um, that isn't to say that some things don't happen more quickly than others, but it's simply to say that we shouldn't force ourselves into this scare state of thinking that if global temperature exceeds 1.5, uh, then within a few years the planet becomes uh, un unlivable uh, or uh, that climate change becomes a runaway. Those, to me, are psychological scare stories uh, that might be good for headlines and for um, mobilizing um, some parts of our population, but I don't think they're the basis upon which good and sound uh, policy intervention should be designed. Um, so I think the cushion of timescale, people, when I say that, I say, well, we, we do need, you know, people, politicians need, need deadlines. Um, in order to bring them to task, um, that may, may be the case. But let's let's have multiple deadlines um, on multiple goals, um, rather than a one size fits all. Um, you know, which which means that we're, we're either you know we're, we're either successful or we're unsuccessful. Um, I, I think multiple multiple deadlines attack, attacking multiple goals can still bring political pressure to bear through different coalitions of advocates um, onto the policy process. That's very interesting. Very interesting. You mentioned the SDGs, um, and I'm wondering if you talk a little bit again about this question, the SDGs uh, as the 17 different sets of goals, very wide ranging. To what extent do you worry that they are, in a sense, being potentially or could be, again, crowded out by this idea of 1.5 and a 10-year horizon or 12-year horizon and ideas like that. And I guess underlying that question is this idea of looking to the future within a 10, 12-year time frame as against perhaps dealing with some of the perennial challenges that we face in the world, you know, with poverty, uh, human dignity, welfare, political freedom, human Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is a little bit what I mean uh, when I, I've written about climate exceptionalism or climate reductionism. Um, this is partly what I mean here. Um, the climate is, is, is elevated to the single determinant of human uh, welfare uh, or planetary survival. Um, that's what I mean by climate exceptionalism. What I mean by climate reductionism is that when we look into the future, 50, 100, 200 years, uh, then uh, the thing that, that 
is changing over those future time horizons is climate um, because we have clever models that can simulate climate more or less on those sort of timescales. However, everything else in our social and cultural and technological and economic world will be changing over those same timescales as well, except that we don't have um, clever models on supercomputers with clever scientists uh, offering us predictions of what's going to happen to medical technology, geopolitics, cultural values, uh, so on and so forth. And that's a form of climate reductionism. We look at the future simply through this one lens of climate. And, and again, I'm coming back to the SDGs. This is why, to me, these offer a, a sounder basis uh, for more holistic thinking um, uh, when trying to design policy interventions. Um, by having multiple indicators, multiple targets, you allow you're not going to hit them all simultaneously, of course not. But what you allow is you allow a degree, a number of degrees of freedom into the political process where certain trade-offs uh, and competing interests, as it were, can be negotiated because you have got enough degrees of freedom in play. If you've only got one degree of freedom, you've got very little negotiating space. Um, and that's why, to me, in a, in a, as a political pragmatist, um, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's much greater value in, in focusing on the SDGs. Uh, otherwise, if, if it really is about 1.5, um, and, and that is the only thing that does matter, then we will end up with one-eyed solutions um, to a very reductionist problem. And we will start putting stratosphere uh, uh, aerosols into the stratosphere. Um, uh, it, it's simply in order to hit that that single target, uh, or we'll embark on processes of energy transition um, that actually are grossly unjust for many of the world's poor people, um, simply in the name of hitting a 1.5 degree target. I often do this experiment with my students in class and say, um, "Would you would you rather live in a world uh, that is 2.3 degrees warmer, uh, but with um, uh, a greater redistribution of wealth and uh, 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 reduction of inequality or a world of 1.6 degrees warming uh, with accelerated uh, inequities uh, and distortions uh, in wealth accumulation. In other words, it's not, it's not self-evident that global temperature is the thing that actually drives um, progressive and ethical politics in the world. There might be other things, actually, that might be possibly more important than that. What kind of things? Like, well, those those things that I've mentioned uh, around uh, in, ensuring that that we don't have two two billion people who have got no access to energy services, to in, ensuring that there is um, greater redistribution of wealth within and between countries. Um, uh, to in, in ensuring that there is uh, no new form of technological apartheid uh, that we in, uh, inadvertently introduce into the world uh, because we're so obsessed uh, with hitting 1.5 uh, degrees um, within a limited time frame. Um, it, it broadens the discussion and, and recognizes that climate, the goals of climate policy, have always to be set in a broader set of uh, 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 ethical and political concerns and it, as I said by having more of these in play more degrees of freedom it actually makes the politics around some of this rather easier to do and do you looking maybe it's uh, well maybe not just Anglo-American but polit looking at the state of politics today it's hard to be very optimistic the kind of nuanced ideas you, you you're talking about and the, the sense of priorities and the sense of, uh, you know, meeting different sets of values and needs and so forth seems a little bit out of step with what we are facing today, certainly in the States, in, in the UK, in Brazil and other countries too, uh, with, 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 not, not just, uh, this, this, um, populism, but a set of, a cluster of, of, I guess, political phenomena that are taking place. And I'm just wondering, are you optimistic that that's, that we're going to, that, that the politics will somehow find its way towards 
being more responsive and more uh, as you say, there's more degrees of fr- greater degrees of freedom in how we frame and, and think about and, and take action on, on on these on these various different questions that you've outlined. Mm. Well, again, I would be cautiously uh, optimistic here. Um, uh, uh, yes, yeah, certainly, certain liberal democracies have, have taken a, a certain turn in, in terms of some populist nationalisms. But this isn't forever, at least it's not forever as long as we attend to the health of our democratic institutions. Um, uh, because in a healthy democracy, there is always an opportunity to throw out those people that the majority uh, in, a, in a nation um, would, would rather not see. But that is only the case if we continue to invest uh, in healthy uh, de- democratic uh, uh, in- institutions. So that is a precondition. Uh, of my course's optimism. Uh, another is, is to recognize that many of the centers of power and the agencies that there are in the world today are not revolved around the, politi- the, ca- the political capitals of nation states. You know, not everything that is happening in America comes out of the White House in, in response yeah, to yeah. whether it's climate policy or indeed any other sort of um, policy or change uh, technologically or not it might be a little bit different in china most of what comes out of china perhaps <laughs> does involve to, to different degrees around beijing um but the point is that non-state actors um civil society corporates municipalities there are many other loca- lo- locations where change can be enacted and where innovation can be trialed and tested uh, and that is in notwithstanding uh, what people in uh, Brasilia or Washington uh, may be saying so um, that, that 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 gives me some cautious optimism that uh, we should not be so browbeaten um, by uh, the Trumps and the Bolsonaros um, uh, to think that you know our, our possibilities for action are are, are con- being constricted or being uh, squeezed. There are many other locations, and part of that is 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 civic protest. Um, you know, as we've seen around Extinction Rebellion and Friday Fridays for the Future, I, I th- those are you know parts of a, a vibrant and lively democracy, and I think in that sense they are to be welcomed. However, we should not, in a democracy, listen simply to those voices that are. Uh, the most spectacular um, or even necessarily the voices that are, that are the youngest. Um, they are legitimate voices, but they need to take their place within a broader ecosystem of uh, 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 civil society and democratic debate and argument. Um, but they're necessary part of it. I, I'd rather live in a country where, where those siren voices um, uh, were given expression than in a nation where those democratic uh, freedoms were suppressed. Well, you covered a lot of ground there. You know, you've been studying the, the cultural side, I suppose you could say, of climate change. Have you thought and what are your ideas about how cultures change and how rapidly they change? Mm. <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I mean, there are some well-attested examples historically that uh, often get brought into play. Uh, here, um, uh, mo- most recently in in so Western Europe, for example, around um, uh, uh, around cultural norms around smoking, uh, around the status uh, of um, uh, gay partnerships or marriage, uh, further back in time, <clears throat> attitudes towards slavery or towards uh, 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 female um, uh, emancipation and these things happened you know in 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 historical processes in real places over compressed periods of time um, and and arguments are may well you know this is something similar that we need uh, in the world today in relation to certain forms of behavior and lifestyle um i mean the most blatant one at the moment i guess is around this this notion of flying shame 
um, that that people should feel as guilty or ashamed uh, of flying as they should of, uh, of smoking in a in a public place. Um, how quickly do these things happen? Um, should they be organized and orchestrated from the center through legislation? Should it be of a, a more organic nature? I, I, I think this is a complicated question. You know, a lot of a lot of cultural norms and values intersect with much larger narratives about human responsibility and, and freedom uh, in the world. Uh, some of these may uh, resonate with um, political ideologies, but many of them also can be traced back to religious instincts, um, whether um, the, 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 the legacy instincts of past religious frameworks that have lost energy and vitality, although actually for many in the world, uh, religious frameworks uh, that are, are still uh, vibrant and, and important today. Um, and these are these are things that are quite hard to dislodge. Um, and it's not entirely clear in any way who is entitled to go around trying to dislodge um, norms and values uh, and, and beliefs that are held very dear by very large numbers of people. Um, I've just come from a meeting last week of um, different religious leaders and activists here in the UK, seven different religions grappling with the idea of climate change. And it's, it's pretty clear that when one starts looking into different religious traditions and practices and beliefs and teachings, that again, we're not all on the same, on the same page. Um, there is a plurality of, of notions of human duty, responsibility, uh, and morality in relation to human behaviors uh, and responsibilities. Um, so I, I get wary if, if, if people um, think that cultural norms and values can instrumentally be directed coercively or through regulation into a particular direction here. Um, and, and I think here we're back to the discussion about the intersection between dealing with climate change and um, notions of political organization and freedom and democracy. How, how much autonomy, how much freedom is commensurate uh, with um, certain forms of environmental policy making? So I think these are these are difficult questions uh, and just simply referring back to trite historical examples to say, oh, well, we did this 30 or 100 years ago shows that we can do that, do it today. I, I, I don't think those sort of simple analogies really take us very far forward. Very interesting. Uh, mindful of the time. One 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 um, series of arguments that you, you've, you've made, I think, uh, which which I'd like to just maybe touch on is, um, I guess, the heart of it is this idea of investing in the preconditions for the world that we want. It comes back to uh, some things that we, we discussed earlier. But what what does that look like, Mike? Uh, well, um, I would <coughs> place a, a very high value on education. Um, uh, most uh, of uh, the good things and the bad things in our world um, get shaped uh, very early on in people's lives. Um, so I would say from a policy perspective that paying careful attention to the way in which we educate young people um, uh, about social and environmental goods uh, and bads is very important. I think the preconditions as well for me at least are around the health of our democracies and the ability, and this is partly you know, why I focus so much on disagreement in my work, in my writings. Um, my book in 2009, <laughs> um, which seemed to resonate with a lot of people, why we disagree about climate change, why my recent book is about debates, is one of those preconditions uh, is to be able to listen to one's opponent uh, and to understand um, that not everybody who disagrees with you uh, is out to get you. Um, or not everyone who disagrees with you um, uh, is nefarious in their uh, intent or have been brainwashed 
by some nefarious instincts. Actually, people may disagree for quite legitimate reasons. And understanding that and living with that and working through that form of disagreement is, for me, an essential part of um, uh, living in uh, a, a, a democracy. It's part of politics in the end. So these are preconditions. And um, uh, in a way, these are just as important, uh, uh, if, if you will, to invest in uh, as they are in some of the more headline um, uh, uh, policies. And I suppose it comes back to my, over, uh, you know, my deeper philosophy really is that um, partly captured by the notion of, of pragmatism. I, I also have a sense that humanity, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're capable of both the greatest and the worst uh, uh, things. We're both hugely inventive and creative uh, and and we're uh, desperately uh, uh, capable, uh, only only too uh, acutely, of, of appalling horrors. Um, but we tend to muddle and mess through. Um, we we we, and and that that to me is is how we will deal with climate change. We will shave off some of the worst scenarios of future climate change. And we will make some uh, interventions through technology and through new forms of cultural and uh, economic innovation that will uh, steer us away from some of the worst futures. But nevertheless, there will be um, disasters uh, and there will be suffering. Um, and it, for me, that's simply what it is to be a realistic human in the world. Um, uh, and the, the danger with some of the very high-flown rhetoric around climate change is, is that somehow we can achieve more than I think humans actually can achieve. We, we can't engineer the future uh, in, in ways that will deliver um, the, the ideal scenarios that uh, inhabit our imagination. Very interesting, very interesting. Maybe one last question, Mike, if I might. I think you've done some recent research or written something about the question of migration, climate-related migration. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe just very briefly talk about that. It's something you do see quite a lot of talk about as well as various um, uh, scary, very various worrying scenarios at, at uh, what, what might happen, the kind of migration, the, the people's lives being affected by, by extreme climate events and, and some of the related questions. Yeah, so that I think this, you're referring to a piece that I wrote with a group of colleagues who were thinking about questions of human migration and mobility. Um, I'm trying to get away again from forms of climate reductionism and, and rather simplistic analyses that, you know, suggest oh, we, we can put numbers on, you know, how, 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 many, how many climate migrants there will be for every degree of warming. And you end up with 200 or 400 million or whatever. Um, is, that, is that actually very helpful for thinking uh, about human mobility you, you know human mobility is is an integral part again of of, of being human P people have always been mobile um you know some of the the, the challenges of mobility uh have, have emerged you know in later modernity as nation states and borders um became in, inscribed in political institutions uh, actually pr provided more barriers for mobility and also with the sheer numbers of people on the planet, of course, which is also another factor. So I think w what we were calling for was a more nuanced take on this to understand that people move uh, from one place to another for many, many different reasons. In environmental hazard and disaster can be a factor in that, that decision to move, um, but it rarely operates on its own. It usually operates in the context of the broader politics uh, and economics uh, of the places that people live in, which is why when we challenged the notion that the Syrian civil war was a climate war, um, we didn't feel that that type of narrative around Syria did justice enough to the political economy of Syria, the particular politics uh, of the Assad regime and the ethnic histories <coughs> of that territory. Uh, yes, drought was serious. Yes, drought had an impact uh, on agricultural production. But to call that a climate war um, uh, actually 
detracts from the uh, the political responsibility uh, that the leaders of Syria uh, should be held uh, accountable to. Uh, and this is, you know, too often the danger with um, simple narratives around climate. Climate becomes the scapegoat for everything. Um, rather than understanding that climate only influences people in particular contexts. And you can, if you change the politics of a country, you can change the impact that climate change will have. If you change the distribution of wealth and power in a country, you can mitigate the effects that climate change will have within that nation. And those are things um, possibly in many cases easier to tackle than to uh, er eradicate the 50 billion tonnes of CO2 that we emit into the planet every year. Well, it looks in the United States, at least, that the various new Green New Deals that are evolving somehow aspire to bring these together and to build a more progressive, you know, social justice society at the same time as dealing with, you know, uh, carbon emissions and, and, and so forth. Um, so be interesting to see how that evolves. What's next for you, Mike? Oh, well, I, I continue to work um, in a geography department and climate change continues to be uh, the, the, the thing that has driven and guided and shaped my career and will continue to do so. The story of climate change is certainly not finished. It will take uh, future twists and turns uh, along the way. Um, and I hope to continue to help both my students and uh, those audiences that I engage with um, different stakeholders and civil society um, to help them think through what really is the um, underlying drivers uh, of the uh, social and environmental ills that we face and to not to absolve climate change of all responsibility. I'm not trying to let, get, you know, eradicate climate change from the, the playbook, but I think it has to always to be placed uh, into a much wider set of considerations um, and climate science is only going to be a limited part of that story. Um, so that will continue to shape and guide my research uh, with my students uh, and in my public writing and speaking uh, in the years to come, I'm sure. I wish you the very best of success with your work, Mike. And thank you so much for taking the time today to share your ideas, your research and um your hopes for our continuing uh, attempts to deal with, as you say, the social and environmental uh, challenges that we face today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.